welcome to the Nightcraft podcast, where leading knitwear designer and author Erica Knight and I, Arabella, Erica's daughter and collaborator, chat about craft and creativity in the hand knitting industry and beyond. In this episode, I ask Erica to choose her desert island discs of favourite yarns from her stash and reveal what makes each one so special. So today, I wanted to talk to you about your stash, your yarn stash. And I'm not going to ask you the size of your stash because I'm only too aware, frankly. I've had to live with it. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's a large part of the family, shall we say. And I think, I think most crafters will understand the concept of a stash. I, I know that I collect all kinds of bits and bobs of craft and other people have huge amounts of fabrics or could be buttons or beads and all these kind of things that you just pick up in maybe charity shops or at car boot sales. Sometimes it's leftover things from projects that you can't really bear to part with that little bit that's left. It's kind of its own thing because it's not necessarily (laughs) materials that you've bought for a specific project. It's just a collection that has come into being over time and is really important and almost impossible to let go of well i take well i take what can i say i do have little curated um subsections of yarn stashes as well i think um, that some, makes it sound more organized than it is can <laughs> I yeah no that's true um that's true but some people do you know they do try and organize that but we all know that it is a response to just touch and color and yeah we buy it and we we just have rooms and um, some have stash palaces. And that's fine. It, we, we, it is defines who we are. And we all know it's like a little secret code, the uh, yarn stash. So do you think that you can select just five yarns from your yarn stash and just talk to me about why, you've, why those ones deserve a place there? <laughs> why they deserve to be living in the yarn stash yes um this is it's like therapy today isn't it i mean that that just feels like um i've got to come clean on a lot of this stuff it would have to be a wool i mean it would have to be um one of my most beautiful wools because wool is just the lifeblood isn't it for a knitter this is a british british breeds you know had long been when I when I was growing up you know the wool had the perception of being you know very very rough and um what have you and the British breeds you know people really didn't identify with them but this is um the wonderful noble uh blue face Leicester which is a wonderful uh sheep um with very long ears a very noble look to it and it's fleecy very crimpy when light bounces back on it gets slight refraction so it's very lovely for making stitches so beautiful for stitch work and arons um and of course this this yarn wool local um uh i designed for the Eric Knight yarn collection and this is mixed with um, 50% of Massam another wonderful sheep's breed Um, and it's just a hero yarn to me at least it's sort of a four-ply weight and it's just fantastic because you can it's wonderful on its own or you can ply it up which means using two ends and I use as an Aran weight yarn 
bit thicker, mixing it with mohairs and other fibres. So it's a bit of a workhorse, as is our British sheep breeds, and um, celebration of where we are now with wool in the country, uh, which is great. Most, um, most yarn, or not yarn, sheep, wool that are grown in this country is actually for the carpet industry or it had been for the last 50 odd years hadn't it mm, yeah well very much so um and certainly when <laughs> certainly when i left art school um we used to use british sort of breeds uh, i i don't think even then i knew what breeds which individual breeds they were you know, we used to use them in weaving, um, these wonderful sort of dobby looms and everything um, and what have you. But I, I think one of my first trips up to Ilkley in a little borrowed 2CV, I went to buy up all this yarn and it was very, very cheap. I thought I was in my element in this um, mill in Ilkley, buying up all these wonderful random colours. Of course, it was so coarse. So coarse, um, but I remember doing uh, some feral sweaters with it, and and really, then I found out it was for the carpet industry. <laughs> um, so and I think these ferals are still in existence. They must forty be. years later. <laughs> they <laughs> must know, be. They'll never wear out. <laughs> they never wear out. They never wear out. But it's um, amazing, you know. I think I started um, in knitting with just being really with lots of passion and um, lots of uh, ignorance and you learn about things and you learn about the different sheep breeds um, of, of the countries and that's just been an amazing thing and uh, while I was at Rowan and working with wonderful Marie Wallin um, it's been evident over the last probably now 15 years that um, you know hill farmers you know were really keeping sheep for their meat rather than um, it wasn't worth their while to be honest to get them sheared um, was it wasn't worth the diesel or having the shearers come around to to shear um that's maybe an old story now where people now are you know resurrecting um ancient breeds looking at different breeds and um we've seen more sort of localized breeds which is great uh, hobbyists and now they're being commercialized so it's a very different thing now and wool we em embracing wool so farmers aren't keeping them just for the meat now uh, sheep for the meat now but um, that, um, that always had really surprised me when you know when you first started um talking about british sheep breeds and stuff it's, yeah probably about eight or so years ago and that even then so recently farmers just weren't getting enough money for the fleece that it wasn't even worth them driving to the market and that's yeah. it's just so shocking and obviously we don't really think about it necessarily in the in the craft industry that most wool is just a byproduct from the meat industry and you know yeah. i've always thought wool is it's and it is it's very sustainable and it's a really good uh, natural fiber but then the meat industry is obviously one of the most polluting industries in the world so there is this dichotomy and it's about asking again as we always say it's about asking a lot of questions and how how and where the fleeces are coming from and that's where these kind of 
things like the responsible wool standard or um, even you know the British Wool Marketing Board, there are these structures put in place to make sure that things are being done well. But um, I think there needs to be a bit more of that and a bit more transparency as well. Um, I was listening to this incredible talk by um, Jen Hunter, who runs the Fern Hill Farm. It was a talk um, hosted by the Sustainable Fashion Collective. Um, that's also a wonderful, wonderful thing. But she was, so she runs her farm, Fernhill Farm is a regenerative farm. And she was talking about responsible wool and actually using the sheep as land management in a very ancient rural lifestyle way and how efficient that is, the, how important the sheep are in managing her land. And she's got it now to the point where her income is 50% from the meat and then 50% from the wool, which is it, fantastic. It's fantastic. But I think we kind of forget that actually, yeah, for most farmers who are keeping sheep, the wool is really such a small percentage of their income and it's not necessarily even, even worth their while. When you think too that, um, I mean, wool, I mean, let's, we could talk about wool all day, can't we? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's breathable. It, as, you, as you say, it's, um, you know, it's, it's one of the best fibres. You know, it breaks down, it's natural, it's fully sustainable. You know, wicks moisture away from the skin, all, all these properties of, um, you know, the wool. But, you know, when you think that um, in the Middle Ages, you know, wool was a mainstay of the economy of, um, Britain um, and I, I, I don't know how well known a fact it is but um, you know the wool sack the speaker in the House of Lords you know actually sits on the wool sack yeah exactly with, with a great big bale of wool yeah you and know, that was literally symbolic of that fact of how important it was you know the wool trade was a huge importance the economy of England like as you said in the middle ages um, and I think it's incredible, actually, that even since then, we're talking like 14th century, up until today, the Speaker in the House of Lords still sits on this symbolic yeah. cushion. Yeah. It's filled with wool. It just well, shows I, how important it was to Britain and still is. Well, it, it still is. And I mean, the, and now the industry, you know, there's so many passionate people um, and um, people keeping... Um, individual breeds and keeping that the breeds al alive and we we now you know really we could go back to an observer's book of um sheep breeds which would be a wonderful thing because all sheep have their own um identity and characteristics of fleeces you know i mean the wensleydale is wonderful too you know the romney um and most you know it's all that localized and we are going back like the same way we're going back to the old methods um everything's um, being reset, as we've said, you know, we're all talking about the reset and we, we need to be looking at things. All these things are cyclical. So, you know, wool, in my stash, wool many, in many guises, but, you know, for me, the blue face Lester, I love the blue face Lester. And, um, you know, we spin this one with, um, or had spun this one with James Laxton, a fourth generation mill. And this isn't an old and dark and satanic mill. This is a very funky new mill and with a lot of new machinery and soon to be sort of new dye house, 
Um, and it's just wonderful to work with James and Alan, what Alan doesn't know about fibre um, and everything. So it's really lovely to have these close relationships. And um, uh, they, well, obviously he's a Worcester spinner. So, yeah. you know, this is, um, uh, you know, very different. Um, and th this is where all the um, fibres are very long. And they lay flat. It's it a smooth finish, but also much stronger, isn't it? Because worsted yarn is... Um, what's used in the weaving industry as well, which I know obviously Laxton's does a lot on that side as well um, for fabrics. So it's it's smoother but stronger than Much stronger. Spinning. Yeah. yeah, wool has got to be in there. Wool, wool in my yarn stash is um, a wonderful thing in many guises. Um, I love the fact that wool can be as fine as you like, whisper fine or or just um, even like a roving where it's just uh, more or less as it, it's come off and it's spun and it's thick and it's airy and just beautiful. So it, it has many guises and it's insulating and it can be used in houses or furnishings and as we said, carpets, but close to the skin and swaddling up baby. So what's not to love about wool? So we've established that wool is probs your fave and you're going to pick that out first from your stash. But what what are you going to pick yeah. next? Well, you know, I, I do love... Uh, so we, you know, talked about wool being so, like, ancient and always there. and But it can be broken down and it can be... So for me tweeds oh my god I do love a tweed and you know the oh, I used to work with a um oh many many tweeds in my life but one of the best tweeds um in Ireland um Kilcarra yeah a company called Kilcarra in Kilcar County Donegal they were a wonderful tweed maker um obviously this is a woolen spun so these are a mixture of fibers that are a different process called woolen spinning and uh this is uh ju it's just very very soft and squishy this one i've got in my hands so you just have to imagine that it's um and the nets it's got little flecks of other um bits of color and texture put into it and they they used to be wool because these were um, from little bits of waste product that would have been felted up from old garments and you know a, a, a regenerative thing so it's a, a waste product it's the like. original upcycling really original upcycling. yeah that's you know um, just become so far removed from that we forget that all these processes were just what you know normal practices I've worked with Kilcara for many, many years. And what was lovely, there was a wonderful designer called Perry Ellis uh, back in the 80s, American sportswear designer. But yeah. oh my gosh, his palettes were amazing. And um, how he would colour tweeds were just beautiful. So I had the opportunity to work many, many years ago with him. Oh, the reds and the, the greens, and they, they were just beautiful. Did he use... A knitwear in kind of sports tech wear then? Not in a, a sports tech way, but his, his knitwear was really well informed. He obviously had a, a real eye for texture and 
it would always inform his collections and his colour really spoke for him and and I love the fact that he had this association with Kilcar, this sort of wonderful mill in Donegal. I think now Kilcar, they, they're still doing a lot of yarns, um, uh, still a vertical mill. And I think uh, Noll Yarns, who's um, synonymous with, with tweeds, now um, distribute um, Kilcarra, um, or they're called Donegal, I think now. The other tweed, I'm just trying to think, Tom, Tom of... TM Hunters years ago, he used to be on their Scottish borders. I used to be able to go up there and with this waste product, I was saying about the, the totally upcycling, the waste product that was made into little felted bits called nets and these would be very colourful. And what was wonderful if you went up to see Tom was you could get a handful of yellow or a handful of blue or a handful of green and you could sprinkle it. That's what I love about um, tweeds the most. It's I really love those beautiful kind of gnarly mauled neutrals and then these bursts of these little pops of really bright colours and it just Wonderful. works. I love that. You know and I mean it, it became bad in the um, in the times I think really during the mid 80s uh, it was very sad because TM Hunt has now closed. Um, they were in Brora and it's such a sad business because um, the industry then used to import. Can you imagine? You would be importing nets from the Far East. Which I still find that so shocking. Just crazy. When um, I just think more tweeds, we need to be designing more tweeds. We need more people coming into the industry, designing more yarns and um, we need more color in our lives. We need more periellises and um, these tweeds. Although I have to say, um, Isager, the wonderful tweeds that they do in these fine, fine, and of course the wonderful Jamesons, their tweeds, their tuplies are a, a thing of beauty. So. One cannot be without the tweed in one stash. Okay, so what's number three from your stash? Oh, this is my newest one to my stash. This is my newest one. And it's a fantasy yarn. Now, there's not often I can be accused of loving what they call in the business a fancy yarn. <laughs> and a fancy yarn, it would be like um, something noppy or twisty or... Well, a bit fancy. I think what always uh, comes to mind is those kind of scarf yarns of the 80s. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, fancy yarns, um, you know, uh, Prato in Italy, just outside Florence, they are the home of now of most fancy yarns in a way. We used to have loads of mills in the past in the UK that would do fancy spinning. Isn't that a wonderful word? Fancy spinning. But um, nowadays, most of it would come out of uh, Prato, do wonderful things like chenilles, and they're very clever ways of um, doing different fancy, mixing the yarns and different cores and what have you. And again, could talk about fancy spinning till literally the cows or the sheep come home. But the um, my new acquisition, it's a mohair loop. And this is quite a famous yarn, or an, uh, it is a famous yarn. There was a wonderful designer in the 60s called Bernard Klein. And um, he was a textile designer of uh, much reputation. 
his designs were very, very colourful. And I guess um, he would be um, he would be absolutely pre-cave facet, um, but very much of the genre of being a complete icon and an artist in his own right and a designer, um, and would oscillate between um, textiles and painting and um, just in all things. I think he came from the old Yugoslavia and um, had come over to Scotland. So certainly he had an association in Galashiels with his mills um, and made his own yarn, but he latterly went into hand-knit yarn. It's a funny story, really, how this came to me because there's this, I was doing um, a pop-up shop with um, lovely Judith Isherwood from Fringe. This, yeah, it was a couple of years ago because now it's, of course, Slipstitch London. This yarn had come in, somebody had come into the store with these most amazing, amazing crochet wedding dresses and what have you. And this gentleman's wife had been a crochet designer. And we, both of us, were looking at these designs and they were gorgeous while we were doing this sort of pop-up shop. Um, and there was some yarn there. Anyway, Judith said, oh, do you want the yarn? I went, oh, my God, oh, my God. I would just love that yarn that these wonderful crochet pieces were made of. And um, it was wonderful Bernard Klein and this wonderful mohair loop in these sort of colours because he would, um, or the mill, would uh, sort of peg in those days to achieve a, like a random dye. I mean, now uh, with hand dyeing and whatever, we're very, all very well versed. Um, of how to do that or space dyeing it might have been called before then and they would peg it so this was quite revolutionary and he was able to um, achieve this wonderful effect anyway so this is my new acquisition um, and Bernard Klein of course um, designed yarns and fabric for Chanel and Dior um, and you know he was a you know a textile artist to the couturiers in the 60s yeah you know? and of course he had that fabulous fabulous house that's i think now known as klein house but it was called high sunderland on the it's scottish borders which was designed by the modernist architect who was his friend peter womersley and um yeah it was built in 1957 and it is just i think one of the most iconic mid-century um houses it's so so of its time single story wood and glass and just sunken lounge sunken yeah. lounge yes now who wouldn't love a sunken lounge oh conversation pit that's I, conversation. Yeah, my ambition is to have a conversation pit i love it this is, this is my um, star piece at the moment. This is a bit which um, I'm not quite sure what to do with this yarn at the moment. It's been, you know, it's always there in the stash at the top at the moment. It needs to be in a deserved piece. Yeah. You know, it, it may be a swatch. It may be something that I do and layer in lots of ribbons like Bernard did. Um, it's very much of its time, but I think it has to be with other colour. And so it, it's deserved to be knitted on 
those gold metal knitting pins of the 60s at the time. Definitely. And I've got to be very immersed in that journey, I think. That kind of, because we're talking about mohair and then you were saying those gold knitting pins that always reminds <laughs> you of that thing that you always said about your mum had that yeah. kind of orange mohair yeah. that just well, lived on the sideboard. Well, I did think, you know, I think my mum was actually, she was very creative, you know, and she knitted and she um, embroidered and what have you. But I always remember we had this very, very cool sideboard back then, but in the back of the sideboard, which, which what we would call lovingly now would be a UFO, you know, an unfinished object. Um, but it was this like a beast that was a, this wonderful orange mohair, a lot, I mean, a really good mohair, because, you know, um, I had very much to do with uh, Kid Silk Haze in its first incarnation with Rowan which was back in the day made up in Biella and which was wonderful and it's one of the if not the best um, uh, yarn around um, because this yarn at the back this orange I can still that see that intensity of orange and very long um, pile to it but it sat there so not menacingly quite coaxing in the back <laughs> of the sideboard but obviously you know like um, stabbed through with these wonderful gold gold uh, metal pins and I always remember my mum getting that out and doing a few rows and then coming back but when I was going through my punk years of course you know um she did knit me lots of mohair sweaters yeah um, sort of homage to that to that time so you know this yes mohair is um we'll all have mohair in our stash too we yeah. all will. So. <laughs> well, and also, actually, what's so nice about, um, because that is, it's so fine, I find it just so difficult to knit with. But what is nice is that you can um, ply it with another yarn. Like, it's perfect with Wool Local that you were talking yeah. about in your first stash pick. Um, and using that end of mohair and then an end of a more a smoother kind of wool yarn or something and you get a really beautiful effect well I, I think mohair you know I like knitting fine um, yarn like that on great big needles because you know it's really airy and you know I always say they're whisper yarns you know and you can manipulate it so much so um, yeah, I don't know what, what we're going to do yet with um, this fantasy, this mohair Bernard Klein one, but it deserves, it deserves something special. How about, <laughs> is there a yarn in your stash that you would pick for crochet? Because we've talked mainly about knitting. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Because I think we forget, so if we're knitters, we, you know, the dark side is crochet and if we're crochets the dark side is knitting but I think crochet is a beautiful it's very different it's all about the rhythm it's all about the rhythm you know having you know just one loop on the hook all the time very easy to transport you know great on trains you know um, great um, you, can, you can pick it up easily you know things don't fall off so much and you you, you know, it, it's a much more pick up and put down type of thing. And I do love freeform crochet. But, you know, traditionally, too, um, crochet has not, in, in a sense, and I don't mean it's not been loved so much, but we, 
there, there is a plethora of using um, maybe cheaper, maybe more um, synthetic yarns for, for crochet. And I believe it's such a wonderful art. It's very sculptural. You can, you can make things in crochet that, that don't work in knitting and, and vice versa. So everything has its place. So I was very, very conscious to make an elegant yarn for crochet. Um, and so with the Eric Knight Yarn Collection, it's, I love linen, I love plant-based uh, fibers. Um, and the, we call it like studio linen, which was um, uh, a mix of um, uh, regenerative uh, fiber and premium fiber linen and mix. So you, because linen, you get this lovely, lovely drape and linen um, is such an ancient fiber. You, you can read about it from the Egyptians. Um, and it's very cool when you wear it. It's very different when you knit a plant-based fiber because there's no elasticity like a protein um, fiber. And so it's rather lovely for crochet because then with the rhythm, it just makes beautiful stitches and quite a makes a sophisticated crocheted garment. Linen is is much coarser and yeah, as you said, it's kind of stiffer on the needles to work with than a protein fibre like wool that's got that elasticity. But with studio linen, what was really nice in having that majority, the 85% that was recycled, regenerated linen, meant that it had already got that softness that, that you associate with linen fabric when it's been washed and worn a lot. And so it's, the fibers are almost like already broken down. So they've got that additional softness and added drape as well, which is what makes it, I think, a really yeah, I think, yarn. Yeah, drape is, is really important for that because crochet, by its nature can, because you've got more or less twice the amount of yarn going through every stitch. Um, it um, can be a bit more solid um, to, to make garments. So it, it's always quite a challenge to make garments out of crochet. There's some beautiful ones. There's some beautiful garments at the moment. Um, many, many designers um, uh, working in crochet. I mean, great for homeware as yeah. well. I remember we um, did um, we, um, one of the books. We've done a lovely, some lovely throws in it in this yarn. They're beautiful. They're really draped and they look very elegant. And the the textures against in your home, you know, against wood or um, metal or glass, you know, they're quite elegant. It's, it's really nice. But the linen too um, takes colour very well. So with this yarn, you're able to get a really lovely palette of quite muted colours. And it's nice taking colours from the landscape. I mean, like with Well Local, you know, been informed by the area around the mill and on Ilkley Moor again. We're always going back to Ilkley, you know. And um, always back to the landscape. That's the ultimate always. inspiration. Your fifth and final oh. for this, for this uh, particular episode <laughs> we can return <laughs> but what would be your fifth more, yarn from this your be more, more journeys through my yarn stash yeah. <laughs> um, you know, well you know protein fibres obviously you know derived from like animal you know whether they be wool or alpaca but you know I'm so um motivated 
by plant fiber. Um, I sit now in my studio and look out at the sea and the planting. Um, and we're all, again, on the reset. It's all about our environment. It always comes back to the landscape. And really hemp, you know, I've got this hemp here. Um, I've always used hemp. I mean, one of the first books, you know, I was using string. Um, I, I love the thought of like any continuous thread one, one can knit with, one can crochet with. String is great. But you know, hemp really um, will save the world. It's natural. It's cheap. It grows anywhere. Um, it doesn't need water, or, or, you know, a little bit. And it's quite fine. You can cut it down. You can burn it. You can uproot it and it will come back. It is a wonderful thing, hemp. Um, as we know, you know, you can um, you can smoke it, you can cook with it. You, you can. It's been used in creams. It can be used in weaving. It's got a wonderful density to it, um, a weight. It can be mixed with other fibers. So, I, although I've got lots of hemp in my stash, um, this is um, one. This is this is actually this one here is mixed um, with a little bit of cashmere and a little bit of cotton, so you get this wonderful, intimate blend, um, and it's it's just a great fibre for mixing into other fibres. And as we are now looking to sustainability, um, hemp has got to be on our, our radar very much more. Yeah, I think it's such an incredible fibre and. The way forward is definitely to explore more of those plant fibres. Um, you know, we, a few years ago, were looking at nettle and those ancient fibres that have always been used for textile. I think actually the word canvas is derived from cannabis, yeah. um, which is hemp. Um, and also, you know, it reminds me of what we've been, we've been listening a lot to um, what the incredible visionary trend forecaster Lee Court has been talking about in the, especially in the last few months of, of this, this year. Um, and, you know, she says the absolute ideal for the future is to make compostable clothes. And of course that completely makes sense. And, you know, that is something as well that um, Jen from the uh, Fernhill Fibre farm that we were talking, that I was talking about at the beginning, um, you know, she said that's what sheep are really great for as well in her regenerative model of farming, because they sequester carbon through, you know, their natural processes outside. And I think, so yes, it's looking to plant fibres, but it's also about looking at all the processes the whole way through the processing the manufacturing the farming um because as well you know you can have a, a beautiful natural fiber but then we wash it in chlorine and we dye it with chemical dyes or we blend it with a bit of acrylic to make it more hard wearing or nylon so then actually or to put in our tumble dryers yeah so then it no Not longer mine. is compostable so it's yeah, it's just looking at all these questions um, or asking all these questions and looking at all these, the methods that things are going through. I think we just need to be questioning everything. You know, the, this whole revolution of, of slow clothes, you know, um, it's been parallel to the food industry, obviously. 
you know, we've been asking questions about where our tricking comes from. We don't want chlorinated tricking, which is very popular now. We don't want that. You know, but if we're paying, you know, too cheap for our tricking or our T-shirt, we need to be asking questions. Exactly. Uh, all the time. It shouldn't, yeah. a T-shirt couldn't, shouldn't be costing less than a cup of coffee. That's yeah. just crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's obviously the meat industry and the fashion industry are two of the most polluting industries in the world and contributing to climate change and um you know it's the founder of um fashion revolution who uh, mm. you know follow the hashtag that we follow the hashtag who made my clothes she started all of that her name's osola de castro and she said you know the most sustainable garment is the one already in your wardrobe so we can interpret that and say you know the most sustainable yarn that you have is the one that's already in your stash. It would be really interesting to know what people are doing with their stashes, what they've done with them in. Um, you know, I, I do believe our industry has got some answers, you know, to the many, many, many questions that we need to be asking. You know, it's but this is so cyclical, isn't it, where we're looking at um, everything is coming around to the old methods and it may, it's interesting, yeah the stash to use the parlance of uh, desert island discs as we've kind of been <laughs> picking picking your uh, your stash uh, your yarns from your stash rather than your songs but obviously we're going to cast you off to desert island we're going to give you the complete works of oh. but what would be your one yarn that you were allowed to take with you if I'm going to be on a desert island as I'm going to be on a desert island I think I might take my wool yeah because that is going to be very nurturing that is going to be very elastic and i can um i can clothe myself i can nurture uh, it'll keep me warm at night it will keep me cool in the day i can crochet a construction and fish i can knit something and build shelter and it will always bounce back. If I knit something, it will um, unwind and it will be ready to be used again. So wool today, yeah, wool today. So on that note, I'm going to cast you off on your desk. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, enjoy. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for listening into our chat. And as ever, a big thank you to Kirsty and Keir for their insight and practical support in editing and producing this podcast. Next time, Erica and I will be chatting to fourth generation British yarn manufacturer, James Laxton, for a peek behind the curtain at his state-of-the-art factory in Yorkshire. Mm -hmm.